Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more freedom and less suffering. Today, my guest is Kat Murty. She is a libertarian feminist. She works with students around the world to end the war on drugs, and she's on the board of a great organization called WhiteCoatWaste.org, which seeks to stop the government from using your money to kill and torture animals in medically unnecessary experiments. If you believe in individualism, if you're a feminist, if you want to see the war on drugs ended, or you simply want to stop the government from torturing animals with taxpayer dollars, check out our conversation and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kat, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Now, there's a, a, a phrase that I had never run into before I started following you on Twitter, and that is mm-hmm. feminine, is it libertarian feminism? Is that, is that how you guys? Libertarian feminism. Okay, great. Libertarian feminism. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, you wouldn't be the first one. Uh, so libertarian feminism or individual feminism has had a really long history in this country. Mm-hmm. But when a lot of people think about feminism or they think about libertarianism, they sort of see them as being fundamentally at odds. And so uh, what I consider one of my very big missions, and certainly the mission of the organization I co-founded, Feminists for Liberty, is to spread this idea that really at the core of both feminism and libertarianism is the idea that people are individuals, and as individuals, they have the right to pursue the life that they see best for themselves, regardless of their sex or their gender or any other collectivist way of looking at them. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's a, that's a great way to put it. So individualism, so it's based on the inherent natural rights, right? That the individual owns right. themselves. Yeah, I so I think you could put it that way. Okay. Do you come from the natural rights tradition or how did you get into the Liberty movement? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. I sort of toy with the idea of natural rights. I think that my views uh, do certainly have uh, a lot of overlap there. I'm not sure if that's exactly how I would identify them, Mm -hmm. but yeah, certainly. um, I don't know. I guess I've always sort of been a libertarian um, throughout my life. I mean, it was just really more of me learning from the time I was a small child of various things that weren't, you weren't allowed to do and then being shocked somehow someone had decided you weren't allowed to do this because you weren't hurting anyone. Um, I didn't actually discover I was a libertarian until I was about 15 though. Mm -hmm. Um, I was online. Um, I was on a messaging board. It was actually a um, cannabis messaging board and there was a debate about legalizing cannabis. And you know, I was on there saying like, you know, I think the drug war is awful. Clearly, uh, it is your right to ingest whatever substances you want. It's your body. It should be your choice. However, I'm a little bit concerned about how the government will tax and regulate cannabis in a legal market. And someone reached out and they're like, hey, so you sound like a libertarian. You should take this quiz. (laughs) And uh, lo and behold, I was a libertarian. Was that the four corner quiz that, uh, that, uh-huh, yeah, that Nolan chart. Yep. I mean, I do think the Nolan chart, uh, which is that like four way political theory, which sort of goes, um, you know, you've got the like left, right access, uh, axis, which kind of goes from, uh, left, uh, on economics to right on economics, um, 
in the like traditional political science sense. So mm-hmm. from um, from like total state control of markets to total uh, total free markets, and then also has the additional dynamic going from the top, which is full authoritarianism, to the bottom, which is full libertarianism, anarchism. And that's for personal uh, choice. That 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 has to do with uh, the social side of it, right? The the up down right. axis. Okay. Um, so largely the social side, not entirely, but mm-hmm. yes. Okay. For the most part, it maps to like economics versus social. And so um, I think it just, there are issues with it, certainly, but mm-hmm. I think it's just so much more accurate than, you know, when you hear people talk about the right, the left, and it's like, well, on what, in what way? <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, too, that I think it's, um, that's a great chart. I've used it myself and a lot of people, I think millions mm-hmm. of people have taken it, I think, you know, I think the last time I looked. And, uh, but I think with the, the media, the way they portray the left-right divide, that I think um, it's more individualism versus collectivism. That, right. That that's the spectrum that, that when people are talking about left-right in the media, they, um, I, I think they're trying to obfuscate that discussion. I, I think that that is the case. And I think also people get very confused. Um, I know certainly even, even within the libertarian community, um, you know, cause I am a libertarian. I'm also very vocally a feminist. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times people would describe me as, uh, a left libertarian or a left wing libertarian. I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm really not like, I'm, not at all. When we talk about that Nolan chart, I'm over here in like the far right bottom corner because I'm super into capitalism. I'm super into free markets. We just have this idea that somehow being socially liberal or not even being socially liberal, but having this idea that other people have the right to be socially liberal without the state telling them what to do is a fundamentally left-wing idea. And it's not. That's about economics. Um, You know, it's not about state control and you know i'm always opposed to state control (laughs) that's what it boils down to really it's about personal choice that a lot of times the left they'll talk about your body your choice but only in one narrowly defined situation right everywhere else right one uh one phrase that i like to play with too i mean i do believe your body your choice but also your body your property that's really what it comes from you know all of these ideas even even the ideas of free market capitalism, for the most part, come from the fact that you own your body, thus you own your labor. Yes. And, um, you know, and when we start forgetting about that, we start getting into very dangerous, scary, authoritarian situations. And we're actually seeing the rise of that right now with people talking I think about we are. the rise of socialism. Are you hearing people um, where you're at, are people talking about socialism at all? Is it kind of in the air where you're at, or is it something that um, it's just in the media right now because they're trying to expand the conversation and push it more towards that collectivist idea? So um, I want to step back from that a little bit and Mm -hmm. talk about it because I think that like, certainly there is a rise in socialism. I wouldn't say in my personal social circles for the most part, Mm -hmm. because let's be honest, I hang out with an awful lot of libertarians. However, uh, I do think there is a rise, but I think there's a corresponding rise in nationalism as well, which is sort of a similar concept that ends up happening um, on the right. And when we talk about, you know, to bring it back to that four-way political chart, Mm -hmm. it's essentially we have this sort of like authoritarian populism that's rising throughout the world. And I think that Donald Trump's election made that a lot more tangible for people in the United States. 
And so that's sort of the version that they're looking at. They're thinking about it in terms of um, right-wing, pseudo-capitalistic um, rise in populism, but that's not necessarily all it is. We've had similar rises in this populist, nationalist, socialism, or communism throughout the world, actually, I think, for the past decade. And it's everywhere from, you know, throughout Latin America, although there have been some recent potential wins that we're seeing there. I mean, it's in the United States, but it's also India, it's uh, the Philippines, it's Russia, Hungary, Romania, um, throughout the world. And I think, like, overall, there is very much this very worrying sense that people around the world, and including people who, for a long time, sort of did stand in libertarian camps, um, they don't really believe in freedom and the freedom for people to choose their own lives. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I do, th I do think that there is a growing support for socialism, mm -hmm. but I think that there's overall a growing support for collectivism and authoritarianism, and that's just one aspect of it. And that's all based on the idea that the, the collective is superior to the individual, that, that we don't have any inherent rights, right? Right, essentially. It's the idea that like somehow... Um, the people, whoever the people are, mm -hmm. and every one of these uh, ideologies or groups will define who the people are very differently and somehow exclude everyone else, um, are doing things the right way and everyone else should sort of step in line. And if they're not willing to, then we will use force to get them there. And that's always dangerous, I think. And I think that it's very easy to fall into that trap, particularly when the people who are pushing these ideas are saying things that you agree with. But when you agree with the folks who are sort of pushing your ideas using force, you end up sort of legitimizing force for anybody who's pushing other ideas as well. That can be that. I can see the slippery slope on that. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> right. Definitely. Exactly. Well, let's go back to the, the um, libertarian feminism for a second. You're sure. saying that we have yeah. like a, there's a long tradition of it, right? That um, when did it get started? Because I'm not familiar with the timeline on that. So it's a little bit hard, I think, uh, to pin down a specific timeline. I think that's just a difficulty with feminism overall. Okay. Um, you know, for instance, you hear a lot of people who bash on third wing feminism and say that you third wave feminism and they say they're in the second wave, uh, kind of in the libertarian circles. And I don't think they necessarily understand what all of that means. Okay. Um, as far as like individualist feminism um, is, I mean, you can find sources going way back, right? You could go back to like Greek classics and things like that. I'm not a classicist, so I'm not going to uh, attempt to bring you those examples, but there's a ton of them. And then, you know, even for, uh, in the more libertarian sense, there's Voltaire, who is around uh, during the industrial revolution. She was uh, best friends with Emma Goldman. And, you know, Emma Goldman is sort of pretty famous, um, anarchist socialist feminist thinker and okay. Voltaire was one of her best friends um well, Voltaire obviously is her pen name and so she kind of they clashed a lot over this idea that uh the collective was the way to solve these ideas she's like I agree with you on all of your thoughts all of your freedoms but then you get to this weird thing right and so I think that she's she's definitely one big leader um 
in the more modern sense, you know, the Associ Association for Libertarian Feminists started, I believe, 1973. Hmm. It was started by a woman called Toni Nathan, who um, was the first woman to appear on uh, to appear nationwide in the United States on a presidential ticket uh, with the Libertarian Party in the 70s. And uh, after the campaign, she went on to start the Association for Libertarian Feminists. And okay. there's just been there's many schools of thought that have sort of like come from that. Yeah. Um, and it's gone by different names, individualist feminism. Uh, some people do call them classic, call themselves classical feminists or anti-state feminists, anti-carceral feminists, all sorts of things. But, you know, as as someone who very much identifies as both a libertarian and a feminist, the libertarian feminist label fits well for me. OK, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Well, I was not aware of Emma uh, Goldman, so I appreciate you bringing that information to myself and the audience. Yeah, so. definitely. I mean, yeah. she's certainly interesting. Um, she's someone I, I enjoy kind of learning from i mean obviously she passed away quite a while ago but uh she's not a libertarian but voltarine who uh she she kind of like sparred with and was very close friends with was um of course that term wasn't around at the time but right. it was sort of a very similar liberal right is that what they they probably were talking right. about more of yeah, a liberal they called idea themselves some sort of well they, they considered themselves anarchists mm -hmm. okay. but gotcha gotcha what about ayn rand what do you guys think in the um the libertarian feminist movement about Ayn Rand and even like going a little bit further back of Isabel Patterson and Rose Lane Wilder. Yeah. So I think that Isabel Patterson and Rose Lane Wilder, I think you could definitely call libertarian feminists, uh, very much so. I mean, these were women, um, in a time when it was not at all common, uh, for women to be able to have jobs, make money, um, be able to be intellectuals in their own right under their own name under female names and they were very much and they were kind of pushing for this very individualist lifestyle that i think was at that time sort of starting to disappear um and of course like i don't want to do any sort of historical revisionism there's many ways in which we were much less free during that period than we are now. And I think on net we're freer now. However, right. there were certainly many ideas of early America that did sort of have this like individualist bent to them that they started to see disappear around that period. And so they were very much libertarian feminists. Uh, Ayn Rand, I don't know if I would call her a libertarian feminist, but I think that certainly a lot of libertarian feminists do idealize her, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, honestly, I'm not even sure if I would call Ayn Rand a libertarian, right? She's an objectivist, right? and there are, which is, it's sort of one of those things where it's like they're on the Venn diagram almost the same, but slightly different, right? And so, um, yeah, so definitely there. I know that a lot of feminists have had there's been a lot of feminist debate over some of the things that Ayn Rand has written versus other things. Um, I'm not an Ayn Rand scholar or a literary critic, but um, yeah, certainly I think that many of her ideas probably overlap quite well. Okay, great. That's a, that, I personally have been hugely um, influenced by Ayn Rand. Atlas Shrugged, that kind of got me into the liberty yeah, movement yeah. from their higher. I uh, love the anthem. It's one of my favorite books. Which one? 
the anthem. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I love We the Living. That's a good one. We the Living is one of my favorite books of all time. The ending of that it still gives me goosebumps to think about. Oh, my God, the... it gives me chills. Yeah. It's yeah, it's yeah. So uh, I, no spoilers. I was about to. I was about to make a comment on it, but. I do highly recommend it. I know she gets bashed a lot for it being a little bit too ideological, but right. honestly, I just think that's kind of the beauty of it, right? Like, it just sort of, like, it makes clear how collectivism really hurts people and really hurts people who, I mean, Kira Arganova didn't care about politics. She didn't want to care about politics. She only wanted to care about engineering. Right. And because the state was so all-encompassing that wasn't even a choice for her yeah, I think people and really... I think like we, we don't live in that world we mm -hmm. certainly don't we don't live in communist Russia thank god but uh you know I, I do think that we're sort of in a similar situation um the state is so much a part of all of our lives both the state within which we live and um by which I mean the the government of our country, but also across the world that I think, um, you know, a lot of anarchists, a lot of libertarians sort of have this idea that like, um, working within the system is fundamentally anti-libertarian. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is, this is sort of a clash that I get to a bit because I think that as a pragmatist, we have to admit the fact that the state is so all encompassing of everything that we do that if you just pretend it's not there, it doesn't go away. Right. We have to actually work and try to change things. You can't just expect it to poof because it won't. I totally agree on that. I, we actually had Jason Pye from FreedomWorks on. Oh, great. He, yeah. I love he's him. He's a great guy. Yeah. He's a friend of he's ours. He's doing great work on criminal justice. Exactly. We talked about the First Step Act. And I myself have, have spoken in front of the Georgia legislature about keeping Kratom legal. And so that had a mm -hmm. really impact when you get to talk face to face with the legislator. They're human beings. And, you know, they, they do hear your yeah. story and they do respond. And I know this doesn't have the huge... Um, impact that some of these other things do, but as far as Kratom goes, I think that um, it, it's been a huge win for, for Liberty, as has the First Step Act, and I think we're seeing a wave of things Absolutely. occurring, that there's a momentum it feels like that's building. Absolutely. I think with both of those, I mean, uh, the First Step Act, I will call out as, you know, it's one of the most all-encompassing criminal justice reform bills that we've seen in over a decade. Yeah. Does it go far enough? Not nearly. Is the first Is it a step. win? Absolutely. Right? right? Yeah, it's a first step. It's a first step. There needs to be so many more steps after that, mm -hmm. but it's a start, right? And w the fact that we're able to do that, the fact that, you know, if we're able to keep um, Kratom more legal, uh, more legal, sorry, that ran together and sounded like I was saying the opposite, Um if we're anytime we're able to pass, you know, bring it back to what I was saying earlier about cannabis, if we're able right. to decriminalize or legalize cannabis, um, yes, you know, we might end up paying taxes. We might have more regulations. Those are infringements on liberty. Sure. Right. But they're not the same as people having their ha their doors knocked down, uh, their dog shot, their babies smoke bombed and being locked in a cage for the rest of their life. Right. So it's 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 wins and losses and you kind of have to make those trade-offs uh and you know libertarians for the most part they tend to be good economic thinkers and you right. just have to realize there's an opportunity cost to everything 
but you have to you have to put stuff in to be able to get stuff out. You have to try to work to make that change. And you know, like you mentioned, these people within the system, they might be cogs within a system, but they also respond to incentives. And you know, when we're able to shift those incentives in a way that a more free society is better for them and is better for their interests and their constituents, we start to see those wins. Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree on that. And I think, too, that um, the reason why we don't have freedom is that people who did believe in freedom didn't do enough. I I personally feel like I've not done enough. And I, I've taken that on as it's my fault. You know, that, I think that every day. But, you know, I want to I want to call out someone else. She's not uh, she's not a libertarian, but she is sort of a personal hero um, as a feminist. Uh, Eve Ensler. Uh, people most know her because she wrote, uh, the vagina monologues. I don't think that's her best book. It's her most well-known. Um, my favorite by her is, is a book called the good body, but the one that I want to reference right now, it's, um, I think it's called, oh my gosh, I just forgot, but I think it's through the body of the world. And in that one, so she is, she's a feminist. She's an anti-state feminist. She definitely falls on the left, but she's also very much anti-state. And she's done a lot of really cool things, uh, particularly in Africa and other countries where she sort of helped women who've been uh, really destroyed by civil war, by by state organized rape and uh, murders and general mutilation, these awful things right. to, uh, organize amongst themselves and build these voluntary communities to help each other and to rebuild their communities. And so like, yeah, she comes from the left, but I think that we can get a lot of good ideas for her. Right. And one of the things that really struck me, I think as an activist more than anything else in, in the body of the world, she's talking about, she, she started, she had cancer and, um, she had cancer and she she was feeling very ill for a very long time, but she was in the middle of all these projects and she didn't bother going to the doctor and she didn't bother going to the doctor and she didn't bother going to the doctor. And then she found out she had like um, late stage cancer and she ended up surviving. Thankfully, I met her after uh, after this and she wrote this book after this. Um, but she talks about how as activists, it's very difficult to take a step back and take care of yourself and your needs as well, because there's this, you get this constant feeling that there's so much more to do. There's so much that you haven't changed. Mm -hmm. There's so many more people that you know are suffering so much more than you. So it's really hard when you're like, yeah, yes, I feel very bad. I wake up every morning. I feel very sick but I'm surrounded by these women who have been ravaged by war, who saw their villages uh, burned to the ground, had their entire families killed, who were gang raped by entire armies. How am I going to go to the doctor because I feel ill in the morning? Right. So that's Mm -hmm. basically what she's talking about. And um, the reason I say this is because yes, I think that we all should be working as hard as we can to build a better, freer world. Right. But we can't do that until we take care of ourselves first. You sweep your, your, no, and that's your front porch first. Idea, right? yeah. yeah, the charity yeah. starts at home. You sweep your front porch first. You make your bed like Jordan right. Peterson says every day. And then you start yeah, sure. to go and, and try to save the world. <laughs> I'm not a huge Jordan Peterson fan, but I will say that I very much agree with making your bed every morning. That right. was um, – my grandmother always used to tell me – my, my grandmother um, was – 
like my favorite person in the world, my role model. She's amazing. Um, she, she always used to tell me when she first got married, my grandfather told her, you don't have to clean everything in the house, but the one thing that you should always do every day, make your bed. And that one thing will set up your whole day to go so much better. It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had. So Jordan Peterson was right on that one. I totally agree. So it's (laughs) interesting you say that about Jordan Peterson. I do think that he does, it's, it's more of a male, you know, he definitely has a male audience. Um, you know, with his 12 rules for life and he's actually coming out with well, new books. I a lot of women who like him, to be honest. Oh, but... is that right? Okay, I didn't know that. But I think, I mean, he said it himself, like his audience definitely skews male mm-hmm. and I think there's right. a good reason for that, but. Right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, what, what, do you, what do you take away from um, in, in the feminist movement about the idea that it was capitalism and freedom that actually led to the advances in the ability for women to pursue yes. careers to yes. pursue um, and because of health and sanitation and all of these different absolutely. things absolutely absolutely i think that those are very core to the idea of libertarian feminism and i also think that they're truth that's just abjectly the truth um i don't know if you're familiar with jamie lemke at all mm-hmm. she's uh she's an economist over at the Mercatus center at george mason university she's an austrian economist and She's just fabulous. And all of her work centers around the rise of women's rights um, in the Western world, particularly the U.S., um, and how that is tied to industrialization and growing and growing wealth. And it's very much true. Um, whether you're looking at the Lowell factory girls who, uh, you know, for their first time in their lives were able to move to cities where they had to live in these dorms. They're very controlled. Mm -hmm. There was, there was like a dorm mother. They were locked in the dorms at night, all of these kinds of things. It's still so much freer than the previous life that they had where they lived on a farm their entire lives. They married someone that their father most likely picked for them. They Mm -hmm. moved to that farm and uh, those like few people that they saw uh, were the entirety of their lives. And those 20 you know, 20 square miles or so. Right. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, all of these women were able to go to a big city. They had a job, they were earning money. And, uh, as capitalists, I think we know money, uh, money isn't valuable because it's fancy pieces of paper that smell kind of nice. Money is valuable because you can trade it for things you need and you want. And money is power really. And it gives, when you're able to have access to money, when you're able to work, it gives you power over yourself. And I think there's a reason, you know, there's, um, there's several, um, I can't remember the number off the top of my head right now. I want to say there's 17 countries in the world still, um, where women are not allowed to work unless they have written, um, permission from their husbands or their fathers, depending on if they're married or not. And, uh, like, it's pretty clear why those laws are set up in that way. Right. And it's essentially, it's to, remove from them their power, their ability to make these decisions for themselves. And yeah, absolutely. I think that the ability, um, the ability to work within the market system gives people, whoever those people are, it, it doesn't matter so much more ability. And I think it's also worth mentioning people, people have biases. Money doesn't have biases. Markets don't have biases. Markets find the supply and demand match. People don't. P- 
people are the ones who decide, no, I won't sell to you because you're black or no, I won't hire you because you're a woman or anything like that. And anytime we put government in charge of markets, what we're actually doing is putting a few selective bureaucrats in charge of deciding what those markets can and cannot do. So what you're essentially doing is adding those biases to the markets as opposed to letting them sort of like naturally work out. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there's certainly, there's a lot of other ways in which um, just wealth, you know, more accrued wealth, the ability to accrue more wealth has really helped women. Uh, I think you mentioned the washing machine example. That's something that um, Chelsea Follett has written about a lot over at Human Progress. Um, and it's really fantastic. It's, um, it's essentially like, so it sort of, I think it rubs a lot of feminists the wrong way. And the reason that it does is because it talks about how um, the rise of uh, home washing machines made the world a lot freer for women. And um, obviously it, it does rub people the wrong way because it, as some people read that as, oh, okay, you're saying that laundry is women's work. No, no, I'm not. However, I think that it is just historically accurate that um, to this day, women do the vast majority of housework. Mm -hmm. And certainly at the time at which these machines started to come into, um, started to be invented, women did pretty much all the housework, right? right? So now you're talking about a situation where instead of them spending an entire day easily from sunup to sundown, at least once a week washing clothes, all of a sudden they're able to cut that down to a couple hours a week. Well, what happens with those other hours? Yes, to some extent, they might've filled those with other household tasks, but it also gave them the ability for the first time to have leisure time. It gave them the ability to do things like read and to think. It gave them the ability to start to pursue education and all of these types of things. And yeah, absolutely. I think markets free people. And I think markets free people regardless of who that person is. But I also think that people who are oppressed are the people who benefit the most from freer markets because those people through the markets are able to get around um, these sort of oppressive cultural and social systems and reshape them for themselves. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Um, you know, when you go from zero freedom to even a little bit of freedom, that's exponential, right? The, the growth. Right. And yes. So the people yeah. who are the most oppressed always are the ones who benefit the most. And that's why I think it's so dangerous of the rise of socialism because they're yeah. trying to sell it to the people who would be helped the most by a more free economy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I want to actually bring back another article. Uh, Chelsea's written, uh, again, that's Chelsea Follett. Uh, I think she does some really interesting stuff. A lot of your listeners might enjoy. Um, how do you spell her last but, name? Uh, F-O-L-L-E-T-T, -T, I believe. Okay. It used to be German. She, <sighs> she changed it after she got married. Okay. Um, but she's written a lot about communism and um, about women under communism because there's been this sort of like dangerous, I think, pseudo-intellectual bent that we've seen uh, in our society of late that sort of glamorizes communism and um, particularly under the lens of what it did for women. Mm -hmm. um, it is absolutely true. I don't know if you've ever read the 
Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital or other stuff that uh, Karl Marx wrote. I've never, uh, I, I would rather, it's like a secret service agent. I, I know what uh, the, the real thing is, so I don't look at the counterfeit stuff. So I just focus on the liberty <laughs> side. So, fair uh, enough, fair enough. Um, I personally, I like I like to read, uh, I like to get an idea no, of what you. everyone you're, thinks across that's the I, spectrum. I definitely need to do is to go through those. I, I feel like it um, it strengthens your arguments when you understand where the other person is coming from more. But anyway, okay. so I think Karl Marx, um, you know, he had these very like gender egalitarian views to some extent. Um, now there is some intellect, there is some discourse in the intellectual community about whether those were watered down by uh, Engels, who sort of like was his editor in many ways, kind of worked through and didn't like those ideas himself. Uh, there's certainly many quotes um, where he sort of like, he had issues with industrialism, particularly because he thought industrialism was allowing women to be at an equal level with men. Mm. And he did not like that. And so that was one of the things that he opposed about industrialism. Now, I, th I think Karl Marx himself actually had these very like egalitarian ideas. Now, and so now do you think, um, did he have those me... ideas? Did he have those ideas just because he was trying to tear down the existing system? Or do you think he actually believed that? Because the way he treated the women around him, I'm not sure if it's he... probably uh... not great. Yeah, no, no. So let me let me be clear. I was about to say that. I am by no means idealizing Karl Marx uh, or anything like that. I'm just trying to give credence to where, like, you see these New York Times articles and you've seen all these articles of late that talk about, you know... Um, how amazing communism was for women. And I think that's this is this is what they're pulling from. They're pulling from those traditions. Okay. And my point is, is they're wrong because they're <laughs> looking at these words and they're not looking at what actually happened. Right. right? And similarly, I mean, there's been article they've written about, there's been New York Times articles, um, a lot of other things, but I think the New York Times articles particularly to credence about like how women's sex lives were better in, in under the USSR or... Uh, women fared much better in communist China because uh, Mao Zedong declared that men and women were equal in China. Yeah, sure, that's a great idea, except if you start actually looking at what happened. If you look at the USSR, for one, um, you know, they had shortages, right? Of course they had shortages, but also they had shortages that skewed largely to women's products because things like menstrual products like pads um, were considered luxury items. And so women couldn't access them. They just, they didn't exist. Right. Uh, there weren't, there weren't cosmetics. There weren't things like that. Like women didn't have access to those stockings, any types of things that women would use and men wouldn't use were considered luxury items and factories weren't allowed to make them. Hmm. If you look at China, all of these people who are making these, what I see is absolutely offensive arguments, right? Sure, Mao Zedong thought that men and women should wear the same gray suits, shapeless suits, and cut their hair the same and do the same work. And that's one thing to say. Let's also look at the fact that under communist China, to this day, there's been uh, over 400, what, like 400,000 forced abortions, probably more oh, under yeah. the one child policy. I think it might be in the millions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say 400 yeah. million. And then I was like, no, I think yeah. I'm, I think you're right. I just, mm -hmm. I don't want to, no, I understand. <laughs> I don't want someone to call me out and I can't remember the exact number. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. There's been so many, um, 
there's what there was thousands and thousands of people died suffering uh from starvation yeah. uh i well, think actually more women yeah, than men 50 million. there's been yeah there's mass uh feticide of female uh female babies in a bucket of water uh, again one child policy there's all sorts of right. awful things and you're gonna go and look at that and say that that is equality it's not and i don't think that anybody who's actually being intellectually honest would look at this and say that but I think it's a mix of people sort of having this very like warm, fuzzy picture of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everyone was equal and we didn't have starvation and stuff like that? And then saying, okay, so that'll be great. Let's just do that. Not looking at the actual history or how the stuff works or anything like that. And people who are frankly are intellectually honest and uh, dishonest and want to push a certain narrative that's just not true. Yeah, definitely. I think, too, with women, that it was equal misery, right? I think there's a quote by right. Winston Churchill about right, socialism exactly. being, it's, uh, you know, it's equal misery that it's, uh, you know, um, equal opportunity, but not equal outcome, I think is what we're looking for, because everybody is so different, right? Absolutely. I think there, I think Absolutely. there are inherent differences, personally, you know, with every individual, and then within groups of individuals as well. Yeah, I, I think I'm glad you brought that up because that is very much sort of the core of libertarian feminism, right? We want, we recognize two things. One, the state has always been the greatest oppressor of everyone, but also yes. the greatest oppressor of people along gender and sex lines. Two, that yes, there are still ways in society um, that people might be unequal, but the solution is not to force everyone into the lowest common denominator, but to try to open up society in such a manner that everyone's able to pursue what's best for them, essentially. More freedom is, is frankly, I think, always better. I totally agree with that. The more freedom, the more that we can have voluntary transactions, the more peace, the more trade, and that you're actually more building. Choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about choice, and it's it's amazing how the left used to be the one about. Um, they used to talk about ending the war on drugs. They used to talk about uh, being anti-war. It seems like those those voices. Um, I don't know if they disappeared, but you just don't hear them like you used to. You don't hear them as much. That's certainly it. Um, and I think also people tend to like. You hear about identity politics, and I, I, I think that a lot of times when people say that, they mean specifically left identity politics, but I think that actually happens across the board, every ideology. Hmm. Um, and people sort of like, they glom onto a set of issues that may not be ideologically consistent. Right. And that's how you end up with folks who, at the same time as they're saying we need to end the war on drugs, we need to legalize cannabis. Um, stuff like that, which I'm very much for, absolutely for. Right. They're also saying things like we need to outlaw cigarettes. Um, I don't know if you've recently heard about Hawaii raising the age of uh, tobacco purchase to 30 now. Oh, wow. And uh, it's supposed to eventually raise to 100, which is a default ban. <laughs> right. right? And, um, or, you know, the, the push to outlaw, um, vaped, uh, vapes and vaped, uh, tobacco, vape nicotine, um, all of that. And I think people, it's, there's something truly disturbing, but I also very human about the ability to both say the drug war is terrible and also promote the drug war. Same thing. You hear a lot of people pushing for like, 
oh, you know, we need to legalize cannabis and also we need to outlaw opioids. Right, exactly. Well, is that really what you want? Because let's, all of the same problems that you're seeing from opioids are caused by the exact same causes as issues you see with other drugs. Definitely, it's the prohibition. That's the side of it. You know, I personally um, right. is, have been in chronic pain for 30 years and I've seen personally doctors getting letters from the DEA. I've been cut off from pain medicine before. Um, yeah, it, it, it you're treated like you're you're a convicted criminal on parole if you're in pain management, and uh, absolutely, there's so many patients who are really struggling, like especially end of life patients. A lot mm -hmm. of times their their medicines are taken away. Doctors struggle too because yeah. they really want when they see their patients suffering. Most of them they want to help them, but they're under threat. You know, the the feds are basically looking at not just taking away their license, but potentially putting them in prison. Uh, they're limited in how how much they can write if they're uh, particularly doctors who serve patients, pain patients, but also pay cancer patients, end of life patients, et cetera. Like they are really under that microscope. They are. And and we it's have... awful. It's awful. We're making people suffer. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that while we're making people suffer, we're also directly causing more overdose deaths. Right. Um, there's this great, there's this great chart. I think Jeff Myron, um, who's, uh, the Dean of Economics over at Harvard and also, um, also works for the Cato Institute. Um, he's got this really fantastic chart, um, that showed that very clearly maps and every time they pass new regulations, new laws that I love that cup. Every time they pass new regulations or new laws to crack down on opioid prescriptions, we see a corresponding rise in opioid-related deaths. Right. And this has been a very clear pattern, and we know the causes, we know why that's happening, and yet, every time people see a spike in overdose deaths, they think, oh, you know what, let's pass more laws and make it even harder to get opioids. And guess what happens? More people die, more people suffer, and doctors... Right. And I didn't know this. I had Dr. Thomas Klein on, on the podcast. I've had him on mm -hmm. twice. And he's been a doctor for 42 years. He was Stanford trained. He uh, worked at Boston Med. Very, very smart guy. And he started, after he retired, um, advocating for pain patients because he read through the literature and said, it's only four out of a thousand that can be physically addicted because it's a genetic mm -hmm. disorder. It should be, uh, it's a medical issue and not a law enforcement issue. And so Absolutely. we've had some really good conversations about uh, prohibition, about ending the war on drugs, and what it's doing to millions and millions of chronic pain patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up addiction, too, because you're right. One, there's this idea that if you do drugs once, you'll be addicted, right. all drugs. And of course, like, one, most people do a lot of drugs um, that are considered perfectly fine in our society. I drink coffee all the time. Uh, I think I'm, I think it's safe to say most Americans have a physical addiction to coffee. Sure. I also think we don't see anybody dying as a result or, you know, losing their job, losing their house, et cetera, as a result of their caffeine addiction. Why? Because it's cheap. Uh, it's socially acceptable. You can go buy it safely on the corner. Uh, if Starbucks starts putting poison in my coffee, they're going to get shut down real fast. Right. Um, if, a dealer that I buy drugs off the street from starts putting poison in my drugs. It's a lot harder for one to figure out where the source came from yeah. two for that even to be tested. And it's worth mentioning that for the most part, uh, testing kits, uh, the ability to test your drugs, 
to see illegal drugs, drugs that uh, the federal government has made illegal, to test them to make sure that they won't kill you. Those kits themselves are illegal, right? So wow. we're putting people in that position. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar, Governor LePage of Maine, mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but a few years ago, he was talking about the opioid addiction problem. And he specifically um, was talking about Narcan, because there's a push. Uh, so Narcan is um, is basically a drug that they can use um, to bring people back from opioid. Um, it reverses. Opioid, it's it reverses a reuptake inhibitor, right? Essentially, yeah. so it stops your body from absorbing it, mm -hmm. absorbing the opioids. It saves people. It saves people's lives every day, mm -hmm. and it is amazing. And it should be readily available. Every I should be able to buy it at the CVS on the corner. But Governor LePage, a few years ago of Maine, was blocking attempts to make Narcan more widely available. And his essential, I can't remember his exact quote, but what he was saying was, these people deserve to die because yeah. it's a lesson to people not to do drugs. Yes, there's a lot of treating people with a medical condition, which addiction is a medical issue, genetic predisposition plus exposure to opioids that causes it. And, and they're not lepers, they're not sinners, they're, you know, there's a religious aspect of the prosecution of people who use opioids or use drugs, and it's almost like um, it's the Spanish Inquisition. I think those same psychopathic type of people have found a niche yeah. where they can kick loose $6 billion worth of taxpayer money, and all they have to do is demonize people that other people already think are a drag on society. Right, right. I, I don't want to say it's religious because I don't think that it's religious. I think it's uh, moralistic and mm -hmm. it's from the kinds of people who like to control other people. And religion offers a good venue for those kinds of people well, to yeah. get control I'm over other you, people in the same way that the government does. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Religious, what I, when, I, when I say religious, I think humans by default think in religious terms and that, that we have, um, you know, that whatever your um, highest ideal is, that's kind of like your God, right? And then, then you mm -hmm. have the devil that you go after to try to destroy. And then you have <laughs> sin and you have the good people and then you have the sinners and you have heaven and hell. And, and those concepts, I think, are archetypal in, in psychology. And that's, that's where I was coming from. Maybe not in the strict Judeo-Christian ethic, but in the same way that they went after like 50,000 witches you know, back in the Salem right. witch trial days. Right, precisely. And I mean, and these sort of things, like across all religions, you'll meet people from religion, from various religious backgrounds who are very kind, compassionate yes, towards definitely. people mm -hmm. of all that. And then you also meet these really awful people, right, who essentially use whatever religious faith they're from as a hammer to attack those people that they don't like. And, um, yeah, so I think that really it can go either way, but certainly uh, religion has been wielded as a weapon uh, for centuries. Yeah, definitely. All religions. Yeah, and you're you're working with the Students for Sensible Drug Policy. What what is yes. what yes. what's that organization? So Students for Sensible Drug Policy. It's an international nonprofit. We're a grassroots organization, and we empower uh, students and young people around the world to end the drug war. Um, and what that means is very different for, say, a college student in California versus uh, some of our chapter members in places like Ghana or Pakistan or Nigeria or uh, the Philippines. Um, Good luck in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, no, we do. We have, we have an active chapter in the Philippines. These are very 
uh, outspoken young people and they are so cool. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. You're in a situation where uh, Duterte, who's the president of uh, president of the Philippines, who ran his actual campaign promise was that he would kill 10,000 drug users and their families within the first year. And he he did it within the first couple months. Right. Because essentially in the Philippines, there in the Philippines, essentially what Duterte did was he put a bounty on the heads of drug users and their friends and families and said, if you bring a dead body to the police station and you tell us this is a drug user or this is someone who has harbored or helped a drug user, we will pay you. Mm. Yeah. Insane. and that's, It's insane. It's awful. And uh, unfortunately, it's um, he's been very effective in murdering a lot of people. And yeah, so we do. We have an SSDP chapter in the Philippines. And these are young people who, um, even in the face of this, the state-sponsored killing, because I don't think there's any other thing you could call it, right. are out there loudly uh, arguing for why these laws are wrong and pushing for uh, liberalization of drug policy. Wow, that's fantastic that they're that you're getting them young. I think that's the key thing is that we're. I think you know if 80 years ago, if cannabis had been kept legal, the amount of suffering that that would have eliminated staggers the mind. We would have had millions of people who had never been incarcerated, hundreds Absolutely. of thousands of people on the Mexican border that would never have died, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of overdoses that would have never have happened. Oh, absolutely. And not just that. I mean, think about the families that got ripped apart, people who grew up without their parents, all of the economic cost of all of these people, uh, not just being pulled into the criminal justice system, but then not being able to get back into our economy um, and just communities torn apart. We have uh, gender disparities, especially in poor communities in this country. As a result, we have people growing up without their parents or without family members. I mean, it's completely destroyed uh, the U.S. And honestly, the U.S. has fared a lot better than a lot of other countries where the U.S. has forced uh, the U.S. government has forced U.S. drug law onto them. You know, mm -hmm. the, we we look at all of these folks who are coming as refugees from Latin America right now. And uh, people are turning around, they're like, well, why don't they go back and fix their own country? But they're not looking at the fact that the U.S. came in, for the most part, firebombed their countries, overthrew the governments, did all sorts of awful things over the last, like, 20, 40 years, really right. 40 years, which has been the, the most violent part of the drug war, mm -hmm. and created this untenable, awful, violent situation in the countries that they're from. And now they're trying to escape that and we don't want to respond to it. Right. Right. And one thing too, I read, um, judge Gray's book about the drug war. He ran. With, oh yeah. Judge Jim Gray. He's yeah, wonderful. He, he's going to be on the podcast actually next week. We're going to talk oh, about great. the drug war. Yeah. And he talked about one thing that I never thought of was the, the, the th hundreds or tens of thousands of gallons of defoliant that were sprayed on the coca plants and the poppy plants and that stuff has gone everywhere and it's gotten into the rivers and if people instead of you know, throwing, instead of throwing you know not using a straw i think it's much better to go after you know the chemicals that are being used to kill these um these plants in these third world countries oh absolutely yeah the chemicals i mean they've been linked to birth defects i mean they've destroyed the local agriculture economy stuff like that 
Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's really horrible, the kinds of things that we've done. And then you kind of hold that up against, um, I don't know if you remember these, but several years ago, um, these pictures sort of uh, came out of U.S. military in Afghanistan um, guarding poppy fields, right? I had that on my blog. These are, these are that poppies grown by the Taliban. Yep. But this is what our bizarro, uh, bizarro foreign policy and drug policy laws have led us to do. Exactly. Yep. And Afghanistan became the number one producer of poppies in 2002. So 2000. And when? And right. Exactly. After the U.S. government overthrew. Yep. Because mm-hmm. the Taliban had cracked down on getting rid of the poppy plants. And and so poppy production moved from the Golden Triangle, where the U.S. has been in, for the Korean War and then with Vietnam War to make the Golden Triangle the number one producer in the world. And then it shifted production to Afghanistan when the war started over there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's it's truly, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. Um, Afghanistan itself, that situation is awful. We've been at war there for longer than some of these soldiers now deployed to go fight there have been alive. That It is truly, and truly insane. It's it's truly insane. It's truly it's truly upsetting and deplorable. And I think what's worse is that the average American who um he you know indirectly or not has been supporting these wars, whether it's just a support our troops, uh, the U.S. government is always doing good things type support, or just nearly they're just good everyday working people who go to a job, make some money, and money goes out of their paycheck to go over there and blow up people's houses, drop bombs on hospitals. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, we're all complicit in this, and you never hear anyone talking about it. You don't, and it's, um, I think that uh, what's going on right now is Trump's um, looking to pull out of Afghanistan in, I think, 18 months. I think that's the time frame. I talked to Scott Horton of Antiwar.com, and he was on, yeah, talking about his book, you know, Fool's Errand, and how, how we've been in there, and and uh, what a mess that's been. It's been crazy. Yeah, it's, it's really horrendous. I'm. That's one of the few things um, that I'm really hopeful for, for the from the Trump administration. I'm really hoping. He's talked a lot about wanting to pull the U.S. military um, out of a lot of wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talked a lot about wanting to... Um, he talks about it in terms of economic terms, but the U.S. military subsidizes the militaries of uh, much of the Western world. And uh, he's talked about pulling out there. He's talked about closing bases. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not even sure that he's all that ideologically anti-war or anything like that. But this comes back to pragmatism. As much as he's able to make those wins, I think that that'll be a global win for liberty. I do too. And plus, we've spent $5.6 trillion in the wars in the Middle East. And just think what that would have done in in the economy here in the United States instead of right. disappearing right. And again, in, I mean, in, bu- in bombs and blood. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's not just, it's not just that money that we spent. Like, yes, we wasted that money. Um, that money all went to destroy lives. There's really not much else that it's done, but that's not the full cost, right? It's mm-hmm. also completely destroyed economies. It's, um, it's forced all of these people to grow up in refugee camps, under bombs, etc. It certainly turned much of the world against us. It's led to the rise of other terrorist organizations elsewhere in the world. Yeah. ISIS 
very much came out originally from the Iraq war, the U.S. government in Iraq mm-hmm. uh, trained and armed ISIS. The Taliban was originally trained and armed by the U.S. government. It's all of these attempts like this, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like, every single time we go and we bomb people and we, we're we creating terrorists, we're, ta- we're destroying whole economies and all of the value that could have come out of that we're murdering people and i honestly think people are our greatest resource people have ideas people create things people do things people are really amazing and we're we're destroying that so it's yes you're right we've spent trillions of dollars on these wars but that's that's a drop in the bucket of the actual costs Exactly. And I think people are a great resource because the idea that the overpopulation myth, that the Malthusians yes. out there, that, that we're running mm-hmm. out of resources and everything like that. When in right. Reality, there is a finite pie that we all have to fight over and uh, we have to limit future births. And I think that that is that that myth, um, again, as a feminist, I think that that has been just horrendous, um, horrendous. I mean, it's it's related. It's resulted in uh, policies like the one-child policy, forced abortions, um, just a lot of heartache. I think uh, forced sterilizations, uh, which have happened in the United States too. Let's let's not present with, pretend with otherwise. Yeah, eugenics. Eugenics. Yeah, yeah. So you, both eugenics, yeah. um, but also even nowadays, um, the U.S., Canada. Uh, you don't hear about it reported that much, but there's been several issues with women, particularly poor women, uh, particularly poor minority women in the criminal justice system who had a baby and then were forcibly sterilized. And by forcibly, I mean like they had a baby, they didn't know what was going on, and oops, they removed your uterus as well at the same time, so you won't have another one, right? And there's all these kinds of ideas, and I think that's really truly horrendous and it's all because of t- this this crazy theory that came about y- decades and decades ago right and has been essentially proven wrong right uh for yeah. the most part more humans means more ideas more creativity mm-hmm. uh things like that are so the original idea of malthus was that we we're going to reach a point where the population was so big that we would all end up starving to death right. we've passed that population point that he said would happen and not only that, we now produce way more food with much less waste on much smaller plots of land. Right. You know why? Because some of those people who were born came up with some really amazing ideas. Exactly. And when you, when you prevent those births, when you uh, when you try to do other things, I mean, you're also stopping those ideas from coming about. I think that's exactly right. I think you know you have to have so many people to have that bucket of geniuses. You know, for for right. really revolutionary things to happen, but you also need to have people um, utilizing their private property within their own self-interest to better their own lives, mm-hmm. and that in turn, everybody, if they're everybody's better in their own lives, then everybody else through the invisible right. hand is getting better as well. Yeah, for the most part, this is not always the case, but right. for the most part, when we make our own lives better, when we build better worlds for ourselves, that has an impact on everyone else, and for the most part, it makes everyone else better off as well. Definitely. And um, we're wrapping up here, uh, Kat. I really appreciate the conversation. Really great stuff. Before we go. It's gone super fast. It's been fun. (laughs) I think we could do like three hours pretty easily. Um, uh, Maybe one day we'll do that. I'd love to have you back on. Um, 
we, we've talked a lot about some depressing stuff, but uh, what about right. the, yeah, sorry, I'm a little bad about no, that. No, not at all. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there, but there's also some good stuff happening. What about the white coat waste going on with yeah, the, definitely, the definitely. government killing animals all the time? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a strange transition because it is a bit depressing, right. but uh, so white, white coat waste project is uh, an organization uh, that I'm on the advisory board for. It's, um, it's a taxpayer watchdog group. Mm-hmm. And essentially what they're doing is they're cutting government funding for animal testing. Um, and they've had a lot of wins in recent years, whether it's, uh, cutting funding over at the VA that was going towards essentially, um, torturing beagles, uh, all sorts of things. Right. And for the most part, you know, Animal testing is not very scientifically uh, sound. And for a lot of science was moving away from animal testing mm-hmm. um, throughout the 70s. And then all of a sudden, all of these government grants started coming in. And they're only been gi- being given um, to animal testing for the most part. And then you see a spike happen again. And so wh- what White Coat Waste is doing, they're not trying to uh, implicate any bans. They're not trying to do anything to... S- pass laws or anything like that to stop stuff. All they're doing is they're going after this taxpayer waste. They're going after these just millions of dollars that are essentially going to do things like, um, I, I, I don't know how explicit you want me to get here, but to do really horrendous, awful things to animals that are not scientifically necessary, uh, that don't really give us any valuable or useful data. And, uh, I think most Americans, when they hear about them, are hor- horrified by. They, and again, like they, that's those are all things that you're funding just just by being an everyday, normal, going to work taxpayer. And that's what we talk about: getting involved and being aware of what's going on. The one thing that really blew me away was how they're killing kittens. That the USDA yeah. raises like a hundred kittens a year, only for uh, they infect them with a parasite, and then they collect the eggs, and then they kill the kittens at three months old. And so, yeah. that, so that's an insane program. And another one, the NIH, the National Institute of Health, they, um, I, I think the, the number was $15 billion. I'd have to double check that. But going to animal studies, and 85% of those are a waste. That they're not yeah. getting, they're not getting credible science out of that. Well, and I think, I think the market was already showing us. Like right. I said, before a lot of these grants came about, for the most part, animal studies were going out of vogue. And then all of a sudden, all of these new grants came about that only went to these studies. And then, you know, scientists, they're like everybody else. You know, they have to follow the incentives. They're not, they need the money to do their studies. And if that's where the money is, that's what they're going to have to study. And I think too about incentives. Um, I think that's great that you can use that issue to connect people. You know, everybody loves kittens, right? Hopefully. And, you know, even if you're not a libertarian and you can reach across the aisle or or to the other people who haven't quite found the ideas of individual liberty yet and get a discussion going and get some some shared interest and some shared wins. I I think that's, um, yeah, that's something that really is near and dear to my heart, whether it's my work with SSCP or White Coat Waste or just in general. I think... Mm -hmm. For the most part, um, everybody in the world, there's very few people who are truly bad, evil people. For the most part, people want to make a better world and they want to be part of, they want a better world. They want to be part of that. They want to be a good person doing good things. And that's what they're trying to do. And a lot of times that may not be the impact, but that's what they're trying. And if you're able to find ways to connect with those people and look at what they value and show them, Hey, 
I, I respect you. I respect who you are as a person. I understand where you're coming from. But these policies or these ideas that you're promoting aren't building that better world that I know that you're trying to do. I think you're able to work with people a lot more. And so I think a lot of libertarians, unfortunately, get sort of caught up in this like us versus them game. And it's not just libertarians. We all are. But I think particularly as libertarians, one of the things that's really beneficial is that I think a libertarian can find something to agree on with just about anybody in the world. And if you start there, you can go so much farther by trying to find the stuff that you agree with them on and then trying to work with them from that point. And to do it in a in an actual like loving, yes, empathetic way, not in not in some sort of like weird sleazy like bait and switch type thing, but like actually value them as a human and try to understand where they're coming from and why they think the things you do. I think if we're able to work with people together in that way, we can work with the left, we can work with the right, we can work with anybody as long as it increases human liberty. I totally agree. That's a great way to end reaching across and, you know, extending the hand and being the person to, to make that uh, step towards other people and do it, like you said, in a loving, empathetic way, because, you know, uh, being a human is hard, you know, it's rough, yeah. it's suffering and everybody suffers. And the more we recognize that in others and, and, and talk about the ideas of liberty from a principled standpoint for the purpose of creating less suffering in the world. I think that's yeah. a, I think that's a great way to go. Now, where can people follow you, Kat? Where where can they find out more yeah, about what you're doing? You can find me personally mm-hmm. on Facebook or Twitter. Okay. I'm at Kat Murthy. That's K A T M U R T I on both. Um, and then you can find my work with Feminist for Liberty again on Facebook and, tw- and Twitter. It, we're at Feminist Liberty on Twitter. Okay. And uh, Feminists for Liberty on Facebook. Excellent. Well, thank you for your work. I really appreciate being on. This was a fun conversation and I'd love to have you back on. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Maybe, maybe tackle some uh, tough issues. Maybe what the the take is on abortion for, you know, libertarian feminists and and maybe delve into some of those issues. I have a very interesting view, I think. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to hear that. Well, thanks for being on and thank you to everybody who's watching and listening today. We'll see you next time. Thank you.